friends, and welcome back to another episode of Go Ask Alice, the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids from our adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and I'm accident prone. With me is... <laughs> I'm Lindsay, and apparently my voice recording is always several decibels higher than everybody else's. <laughs> several. <laughs> hundreds of decibels <laughs> And I'm Sarah, and I am in a constant state of existential crisis. <laughs> oh, this is no. the show. <laughs> this is the show where we take out our existential dread by wandering around Wikipedia. So every week we start out on the same randomly chosen page, and we just click around until we find something that we deem metrically interesting. Um, something is interesting if we find that we are reading about two paragraphs or more, and then we are beholden to teach or share our findings to each other and to you. This week, we started out with Reese Witherspoon. (laughs) Um, I have no idea how far I have traveled because once again, I deleted my browsers, but um, I ended up, I just want to say that I just wanted to bring to your attention along the way. You're familiar with the Rat Pack, right? Like the famous like Rat Pack kind like of like the gangsters in in LA. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like the yeah. So did you know that there's also the Frat Pack and the Brat Pack? <laughs> no. <laughs> What's the Frat Pack? Is this just some like it was like guys? The, it was the era of movies that all had like Owen Wilson and. Um, Fucking hell, just like all of those broy. G- yes! Yeah, just like all of crashes. those. Pretty much like every movie that had like all of them in it. And that was mm. the frat pack. And then there was the, I can't remember who was in the brat pack, but I passed that along the way and I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck is this? Traveling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. So, uh, where did you want to with- Oh, oh. oh so do we want to start with our question? <laughs> I reckon we should say where we landed. So okay. yeah. We started on Reese Witherspoon. Where did you end up, Lindsay, after your rat pack detour? I went I landed on the uh, the history of whack-a-mole. <laughs> Only you land on the history of whack-a-mole. <laughs> <laughs> and Drew, where did you end up? I ended up on AI Takeover. Oh Jesus oh. Christ. <laughs> <laughs> it feels relevant. Right? <laughs> and I ended up on the history of jack-o'-lanterns. <gasps> there you go. Oh, I can't wait. So actually, before cookie. before we even start, um, I have a user-submitted rabbit hole. Yes. Oh, shit. Yeah, so one of our listeners ended up, which I think sadly triumphs over all of our suggestions, um, they landed on the wiki article for a toast sandwich. (laughs) Toast sandwich, I love it. (laughs) So in Britain, apparently, you, you take a piece of toast and you put it between two slices of bread and you, quote, add salt and pepper to taste. Ew. Wait, so you're just jamming three pieces of bread in your mouth? Yeah. <laughs> Why? That can't be enjoyable. And um, another bonus is that for some reason, I have now ended up following a bunch of Sonic fans on Twitter. 
And with the new release of the second Sonic movie, there's been a lot of Knuckles trivia. Knuckles mm-hmm. the Echidna. And did you know that Knuckles the Echidna was originally sorry, based sorry. off of... Are you saying the Echidna? Oh my god, what do you say? Like, the Echidna? The Echidna, yes. Stop! <laughs> Okay, other question. Other question. How do you say archipelago? Archipelago? archipelago. Fuck this. No. Oh my god. It's archipelago. <laughs> no, it is not. I said it like that in middle school and no one stopped me. Oh, no. <laughs> well I was well, I was shopping in the husky section. <laughs> <laughs> This world is going yeah. to shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. What did you find out about Knuckles the Echidna? Knuckles the Echidna was originally originally created after the Rastafarian flag. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, and he was supposed to have a Jamaican accent. And then according <laughs> to this article, um, he is now of Mesoamerican descent. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Do you but yeah. do you guys have echidnas? You have porcupines in America, don't you? I don't think yes. we have echidnas. I'm I pretty sure an echidna is a native animal to Australia. We have echidnas. Oh, how do you spell echidna? I wouldn't know. Do we have echidnas? <laughs> echidnas in America. Clicky clack. Clickety clack. Don't talk yeah. back. <laughs> spiny anteaters I don't know I can't find out immediately oh echidnas live in Australia and New Guinea so no we don't no we do not, and not <gasps> they're a monotreme either and not- <laughs> where, did they- where did these guys get this idea from they were probably high <laughs> holy shit they descend from the platypus yeah and I think the echidna and the porcupine are examples of like the co convergent evolution on two different continents of something adapting um, very similarly to to fight off different types of prey that try to bite it. Oh, that is really cool. Yeah, they're pretty cute. Damn! Wow, I've learned so much before the show. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) So our question of the week is, what random hobby did you pick up in lockdown? Um, Because I, in Australia, am forced back into lockdown, which is okay, but I am picking up some random weird hobbies. So did you guys get any last year? Um, I did. Yes. Did you, Drew? Sorry. Yes, I did. Uh, I started collecting records. Oh, Oh, that's a cool hobby. I uh, I had a record player for a while, and I was like, I I had a few records, but then I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go and collect a bunch of records, and um, you know, try and lockdown wasn't really lockdown for us, so I was still able to go to like a record store with a mask on and all that, and get some records. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, that was uh, that's my little hobby. Awesome. Did <laughs> you get? That. Do you have a favorite one that you've gotten in the last year? Um, I have a, uh, an old Beatles album. It's their second album and I really, really like it cause it's, it's kind of a little crusty. <laughs> it's kind of got a little bit of age to it. 
And so it's not just like a fresh press of it. It's like it actually has some age and, and it's got a little bit like, little you know, a little character. I could have seen people, you know, way back when listening to it and being like, mm, mm, Beatles, this is great. <laughs> this slaps. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what Drew does in his apartment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't talk back (laughs) i always hated i always hated when grown-ups would snap along to songs i always thought that was like so cringe (laughs) drew is a real grown-up i'm I'm a real grown-up now i snap along to songs i hate it (laughs) (laughs) and what did you pick up Lindsay? Um, so before our original lockdown, I had discovered that there is like an auction site on Goodwill items. So it's. <laughs> oh my God, I need it. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically just like a cheap auction site. Um, like it's like a worse, like, worse eBay. Goodwill. Yeah, worse good. <laughs> um, so I was just browsing endlessly along this site, and for some reason, I couldn't stop myself from bidding constantly on lamps, <laughs> which was stupid because all of my apartment had like ceiling light. Like I didn't need lamps, but I just kept <laughs> buying lamps, and now I bought. I think I won. I don't know how many I bid on, but I won about three. And then during lockdown, I moved, and it turns out that my living room has no overhead lighting. So I got to use all my lamps in, in my living room. Oh, but of course, the, the, hilarious, <laughs> the hilarious bit is that I uh, don't know how to fucking buy lampshades, so they're just lamps without lampshades. <laughs> no at this lampshades. point, I just don't care. <laughs> So, <laughs> just really just as pure lamp as possible <laughs> just pure lamp it's pure lamp in here i love lamp <laughs> I, love I love lamp there you go <laughs> well, yeah. what oh, about you sarah that's amazing um so in the in the very big lockdown last year i started like excessively sewing shit oh because I was running away from my problems, uh, e.g. my PhD thesis, and I made, mm-hmm. like, so many clothing items for myself, and they're all beautiful and fancy, so I haven't worn a single one because I haven't Wait, that's awesome! <laughs> oh, oh, my God. It, that was very I want to see pictures. Oh, I can, I can show you. They're very – one of them is, like, a disco jumpsuit. Um, <gasps> very oh, wow. 70s. Um, and then I also made my dog lots of cute little outfits. Um, <laughs> oh my god, Sarah, you are <laughs> always so down. cool. No, I am <laughs> the opposite. Of <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> but just before this most recent lockdown, I went to the plant, like a nursery store. And I bought a heap of like pretty plants for our balcony, and they had these little like dying little pots for fifty cents. No idea what was in them because they were basically dead. So I bought, I rescued four of these dead plants, and I'm trying to bring them back to life. And so far, Aww. they are blossoming. So that's that's what I'm doing now. Oh, I love that. That's such a satisfaction. 
Wait, right, can you so guess? Shall okay. we dive into the history of whack-a-moles? <laughs> yes, <laughs> please. Yes, please. Okay. <clears throat> so, I think the best place to start is the title of this game in Japanese is uh, Mogura Taiji. Um, and the reason Ooh. that that's important is because the literal translation is mole extermination. <laughs> that was very intense. <laughs> uh, imagine if that was the sign at the arcade. Mole extermination. Um, what I actually... So I, I just want to... There are a few things about this I find actually very interesting. And the first one is when it was invented. So if you guys had to take a guess when Whack-A-Mole was invented... When would you guess? I would hmm. probably like lowball. No, not lowball, highball. I would somewhere, some ball uh, <laughs> I would throw would be like maybe like 1600s. Okay. When okay. maybe they had a lot of crops and moles were big issues. Mm, I like that. Okay. Hmm. So Sarah's guess is 1600s as as the highest. Mm-hmm. As the highest. I'm thinking yeah. like as a as a game, I'm thinking like 1920s. 1920s. Oh my god, so that is a huge freaking difference. Okay. <laughs> I think before I did any of this research, I think I similarly would have guessed like ancient. I might have guessed even like older than Sarah's guess. Um because I, you know, the concept is so easy. You know, just hitting things as they pop up. Um, cats do it all the time. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, I thought it would have been some kind of old game that was just passed around. Um, it was actually invented in 1974. There you oh, go. Wow. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the vintage movies that I watch have a whack-a-mole in the arcade. In the arcade around the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, so 1974 is like the official date. And so what to me what makes this story so interesting is that it was actually very hard to put this story together, like to do the research. Um, the Wikipedia article alone is very sparse. So like I told you guys uh, before we started recording, I ended up like adding an entire paragraph because of the other research that I had done um, to the Wikipedia page. You're but doing the Lord's <laughs> work, Lindsay. I mean, Wikipedia gives us all our content. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that someday somebody else procrastinating will learn what I learned. Um, But what's also so interesting is that because, presumably, because it's so ubiquitous, everybody claims a stake in the story. Like, everybody claims, oh, we were the first to do blah, blah, blah relating to whack-a-mole. But it was actually extremely hard to nail down who invented the whack-a-mole. And but was um, it invented in Japan because of the, the Japanese translation? Oh, was- crap. I totally gave that away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm yeah. I'm a real good detective. <laughs> you are all good <laughs> That surprises me. I thought it would have been an American thing for sure. Yeah. You know, I I honestly wasn't sure where I would have guessed it was from, but I was surprised to learn it was Japanese. Um, I'm sure that you've all heard of Ban- uh, Bandai Namco. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, Bandai 
bought it, but I don't think that they, so no. So the company that invented it is Togo, T-O-G-O, but Bandai ends up buying it from them. But even companies such as Mattel, like Barbie is Mattel, Mm. uh, which I'll get to later, um, even they have a stake in it. But actually there are a group of Americans who do take credit for inventing it. But you have to be careful because they take the credit for designing the part of the game that has the air pressure powered sort of pistons. Oh, Um, so when you hit engineering of it. Yeah. And because of that, they take credit for inventing the game. But if you want to ask who came up with the concept and who developed everything up to that point where it could be improved, that all happened in Japan. So to me, it's not credit, these Americans who are taking credit for it. So maybe that's a hot take, um, because you could argue the game wouldn't be as playable in the same way, um, because Mm. it was slightly more, uh, I guess, rough, maybe in the original few years. But to me, that's like, okay, you didn't really come up with the idea. So you can't claim that you invented it. But maybe that's a gray area. Hmm feels like, like that a- happens a lot though with um like western culture that yeah. takes ideas from either indigenous or european or asian influence and passes it yeah. on their own that's kind of that's kind of my take is like oh this this classic story yeah. <laughs> yeah. but i think what was what was sad was that it really took a lot of digging so when i say digging i mean what i actually did was i went to the wikipedia sources and then went to those websites and had those websites translated from japanese into english but a lot of the time um, my main sources were from like the wayback machine like archived internet sources and internet blogs that were like mm-hmm. interviews done in Japanese that it had to be translated. So I really, I like really had to dig for this information, which is shocking. It's like sad that something that was invented so recently, 1974, doesn't really have very good documentation. And, and mm. it's almost like one of those things that I wonder if it's so hard to nail down because it's so ubiquitous, like almost like its success has the opposite effect. You know, it's, it's such a, classic game that nobody can agree on where it actually started so it's a whack-a-mole game so if you go to an arcade and you see the whack-a-mole the branding Mm -hmm. is that like a franchise does someone make money off it or is it not trademarked and then anyone can have a -a whack-a thing (laughs) that's a fantastic (laughs) australia fun fact we have uh, whack-a crocodile and it's the crocodiles that moved in and out that you've got to hear. I was about to bring that up, actually. <laughs> so that is, I, you know what? Let me tell you the whole story, but I will answer your question directly, which is that um, they, it, it was kind of this case of co-development of like different companies developing um, their own sort of take on it. Um, it's mm. not really clear to me who has the rights, but there's no whack-a-mole company. Um, right. I'm pretty sure... I don't know if Bandai still owns it, especially because Bandai Namco is now like a a thing. I don't know exactly who has ownership over the whack-a-mole idea, but I know that the Americans... So I guess it depends how you ask the question, because the Americans who um, 
created that sort of like piston, um, the air pressurized aspect of it, do have a trademarked company or do have the, they're the ones who coined the term whack-a-mole. Because like I mm-hmm. said, in Japanese, it's like this mole extermination um, mm-hmm. sort of name. So they, they have a different name for it. But um, maybe, I, maybe I should just start at the very beginning. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> yeah, in ni- <laughs> 1974, uh, a man by the name of Kazuo Yamada uh, was a uh, new, the way that he tells the story, or I, it's it's not very clear to me if he was the designer, but some designer came up with 10 sketches uh, at the Togo company, 10 sketches for a game, and wasn't really sure of the success of any of them, and had asked the uh, president, like, do you think we could commercialize any of these? And the the hope with all of his sketches with that there was that there would be some element of exercise or um, in, like physical involvement in a game because he wanted to create a stress relieving game. And oh God, um, that makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, that that was really like the the motivation underneath all of it. That's awesome. So that's kind of like you go to those racket rooms now to let out all of your anger you could just go whack them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so some of the 10 ideas that he came up with um and pitched to the president of the company were um a child pulling a lion's tail <laughs> instead of a whack-a-mole oh. um mm-hmm. or stepping on crocodiles to cross a river ah. but of his his sketches just his like pencil sketches on a piece of paper there was a child kneeling on the floor and hitting Uh, moles that were coming up through the floor and the president of the company like laughed out loud when he saw that picture so everybody was like oh this is the one (laughs) (laughs) i wonder why that made him laugh so much so this is definitely google translate like you know having a weird translation but he said i had a laugh and thought it was interesting to hit <laughs> I mean, you just thought the action of it that we find so funny, like or fun, appealing about the game, like is, uh, you know, maybe <laughs> what was so funny about it. Interesting uh, to hit. <laughs> interesting to. He wants to whack it. So <laughs> the early development, I guess, of the the game itself was that the first like prototype was completely u-shaped so to play it you would stand in the middle of it and you would hit uh all around you well i guess not behind you but you would hit moles that would pop up left and right and he put it on the first floor of the togo company so that employees coming in or out could decide you know if they wanted to play or give it a try and like nobody played it oh i would have yeah it was not (laughs) it was not popular um and I guess in this same interview, they were talking through kind of different iterations or considerations that they made. So I guess one of the questions is like, what's the setting of the moles? And so they were saying if it was brown with craters, like it would look too dirty. People wouldn't want to play this dirty game. Um, if the moles look too real, um, it's not cute anymore. It's just violent. So nobody would want to play. So I just thought it was kind of cool that these were sort of the considerations uh, that they went through. And eventually the first prototype that was actually successful among the employees in the Togo company had this yellow exterior and a green turf. And I guess the uh, moles were probably a little bit cuter than, than real moles. And uh, just incrementally, little by little, it gained popularity until many employees were like having fun with it and playing it. And then it was time to hit 
the market. <laughs> oh, baby. That was lovely. That was lovely. <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> but I wrote it, but then in my script, I capitalized hit. So I hit. Gotta, hit. gotta use it. Gotta say it. But um, actually, when it hit the market in about 1976, so it had like two years of prototyping. Um, it still had this semicircular shape, uh, or sorry, this like U shape, but the U shape was tricky for children to, to do because they've got these little bodies. So they would have to like step, you know, like turn themselves around, <laughs> like swivel, you know? <laughs> so little kids, <laughs> little Get kids have a really turkey. hard time playing the game. <laughs> Spin around. So, um, they, they had some trouble with it, so they uh, instead made the game just like a semicircle and a slope that we're familiar with now. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have that much of a U-shape, but that's at least why the game does have a semicircle. I mean, I know a lot of them, I think, are uh, squares, like just rectangular. I think especially the crocodile game where they're coming out. Yes, you were talking about that's earlier, definitely a, just a big rectangle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like a, a dangerous piano. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, it, it's had, like, a little bit of um, improvements, I think, since then. But uh, at least to me, I, I for some reason, do have in my head that some of them could be semicircular. So, I thought that was interesting that it was, like, a, a movement away from an original just, like, U-shape that you would step into. Um, I also think I would hate it if it was U-shaped because that sounds like a lot of ab work. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um so it's not until 1976 that it had been fully developed and they started to sell them like the actual systems in 1977. And I was really interested to know that they sold for about 2,600 yen. And so I converted yen to U.S. dollars. So in 1977, this was about 10 U.S. dollars. Wow, and that's cheap. Today. Yeah. Even when you consider the fact that it was like 50 years ago, I guess, by now. Wow. 50-ish. 40 or 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's about $45 today. Wow, that's a bargain. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yes. So these systems were being sold pretty cheap. And um, they still kind of, even in that early stage, had a few issues with the um, with the materials. Because apparently, especially like the sort of lever before like the air, air piston sort of thing was developed... Um, they were made out of plastic and so easily they would break because you're hitting it as hard as you can. Yeah. But also the mallets. <laughs> <laughs> so there were, it, the mallets also were like constantly breaking. So there was still room for improvement mm. and they had debuted at this kind of, um, I don't know if there's just like a game convention sort of a thing. They debuted in the United States at this game convention and that's where the Americans picked it up in 1976 coined the term whack-a-mole, made a bunch of improvements to it. And at the time, like, I think that Bandai didn't really care because they were saying that they were focusing a little bit more on electronic-centered games. So this was four years before Pac-Man would make its debut from from Bandai. Mm-hmm. So I think that they didn't really know exactly how popular it was going to be because this is kind of just what I'm gleaning from the story that I read. 
um, or I guess all of the different sources that I'm pulling together is that they kind of they kind of let go, I guess, of the the whack-a-mole idea or pursuit until they had seen just like a ton of of whack-a-mole sort of things popping up in their own uh, arcades. And they're like, oh my God, this has like gotten really popular. People really love this. And I think that started to build this appreciation for the nice, healthy mix of arcade games we see today. You've got like a range of physical games versus like purely electronic games. If you think of those racing games that you sit in or those hunting games that you shoot in, whack-a-mole games that you physically hit, you know, the whole the whole spectrum. Then you've got like completely electronic games. Um but yes, the the Crocodile Head game, uh, to me, was a great example of this sort of like free-for-all when it came to the development of Whack-A-Mole, which was this sort of like, nobody's really owning this, nobody's really confident that this is going to make a ton of money, so everybody's just developing their own versions, and the Crocodile one was one that really took off. Um, also, interestingly, <laughs> when Japan realized how popular it was they developed another version called sweet licks (laughs) (laughs) what does that translate to (laughs) well i think licks is a pun on the like you know literally licking but also hitting oh yeah i can see that yeah but it was based on cakes and pastries. And I shit you not, they did this so that the game would be more appealing to women oh for god's sake (laughs) If I saw, like, the crocodile one and a cake one in the arcade, I would go for the crocodiles. I, absolutely. I would it so way more fun. Croc- I'm a vegetarian, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the worst. Um, but, uh, you know, regardless... Sweet Licks became kind of the Japanese version. But what's interesting or noteworthy, I guess, about Sweet Licks is the fact that this was the first arcade game to include an LCD monitor that kept track of your score. Oh, so high tech. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Just, I, I mean, like, I, I immediately think of like Ski Ball or something like that, where it's like that your score automatically updates. Um, Sweet Licks was the first game to actually do that. Um, hmm. But yeah, what's what's also kind of cool about it is that it seems that the one with the crocodile heads that had been uh, developed was a little bit more uh, complicated because it would give you a point if you hit them, but if you did not hit them, it was as if the alligator bit you and you lost a point. Oh, so tricky. I guess this is also where it's sort of. Uh, yeah, I guess like point taking where, you know, we start to kind of develop this idea of gaining and losing points and it being a little bit more complex and complicated than just hitting it, but also like having this LCD monitor to keep track of the stores, I mean scores. So it's just like really the dawn of uh, video games, but also kind of arcade games that are a little bit more complex. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But that's, yeah, that's that's the history that I have found so far. And now when we look to the future <laughs> of Whack-A-Mole, the paragraph that I ended up adding to the Whack-A-Mole page <laughs> is about the company Mattel. I had given you some foreshadowing earlier mm-hmm. that Mattel even has a claim, a stake in the claim. So they 
claim that Barbie Mattel company claims that they were the first ones to make it into a tabletop game. So in 2009, they commercialized the whack-a-mole game, so it left the arcade and was into the uh, home, I guess. Mm -hmm. And people could own their own version of whack-a-mole. But (laughs) as of an article in 2021, February 1st, 2021, there is a whack-a-mole game show in the works (laughs) to find the whack-a-mole champion. (laughs) And this is being led by Mattel, Oh. So it's Mattel and the producer of America's Got Talent <laughs> are coming together to make a whack-a-mole champion game show. And I believe that instead of just playing the game, there's also like races and obstacle courses. Um, and apparently, according to this article, a surprise twist that will shock both the audience and the people playing. Ooh, it sounds like something so I would have watched I have no idea. when I was little. <laughs> I was never, I was literally about to say, I'm not going to say But hey, no press is bad press, so at least we're mentioning it on the show, and it cancels out the fact that I will never watch it. <laughs> but yeah, that is the, I, I don't know, to me it's like kind of almost a, um, I just thought that the whole thing was so strange in the way that it was so modern, so underwhelming. Nobody had really any faith in it. And it's not even like this clear timeline. It's like everybody just grabbed the concept and did their own weird thing with it. And now everybody claims that they own it because everybody took a weird take on it. So it's just really not a clear cut history mm. despite being so modern. But that now you know everything I know about Whack-A-Mole. What was the, wow, the thank weirdest you. take that you found on it? Would it be the, the cake one? Yeah, I, I think another one that I liked pretty well was a UFO one. Oh. <laughs> Oh, um, I that's like that. really cool. Like, Actually, yeah. Would you like hit them out of the sky? I don't know. I couldn't find any pictures very easily of them. But I, I, I have to say that another favorite. Now that I'm really thinking about it, is that when I went to the Japanese Wikipedia article. So I don't know if people know this, but if you go to a wiki article in different languages, you get a different article. It's not that the same article is translated. It's that this is like a different article that's been written. So I wanted to see what the Japanese like entry actually said. And they talk about a version where you hit kappas. Wait. Do either of you know what a kappa is? I don't know what a kappa is. Um, okay. I kind of have an idea, but I, I'd rather have you tell me so I don't look like an idiot. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay. The reason I know what a kappa is is from playing Animal Crossing. So hopefully that makes you not feel stupid, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've ever uh, played Animal Crossing or how much you've played, but there's this little, like, balding turtle character. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That is... So, actually, this is another piece of, like, very interesting lore, is that a lot of the animals in Animal Crossing are based on mythical creatures in Japan. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. There is actually, like, a very dark underlying uh, mythology to to, uh, Animal Crossing that I'll 
rant about someday. But <laughs> a kappa uh, is a sort of, I, I don't want to say like demon. It's like a monster sort of a thing that um, exists in Japan. Um, you could think of it also as like a cryptid. And um, mm-hmm. it is kind of just like a turtle demon sort of thing. Um, it, they, sometimes they're thought of as like water gods. Um, and I, I don't, they're, they're kind of like the spirit of a place a little bit. Going mm-hmm. back to uh, the other topic I had, the genus loci. Mm-hmm. Geniuses, yeah, the genus loci. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so there was another one, I guess, that I don't know that it ever got really popular, but Japan did have a version that was um, specifically about kappas. That's really cool. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I'm glad that you asked because, uh, yeah, I wouldn't have had a chance to bring that up either. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that is the history you never needed to know. Well, thank you. I am glad that I know it now. Yes, thank you. It's it's greatly pre. I didn't realize how much how much history and how much I don't know intrigue there was about <laughs> whack a mole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like maybe I feel like I've joined the ranks of like top five people in the world who care about whack a mole. And that's like really not saying anything. <laughs> That's really interesting that they had one based around demons. I I like that. And it kind of fits in a little bit with my topic, which is the history of jack-o'-lanterns. So shall we dive into that? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I, you being American, both of you probably are not as obsessed with jack-o'-lanterns or carved pumpkins, but I think they are amazing and I try to do one every year around Halloween because in Australia growing up we never had any Halloween um, festivities and it's only now just starting to come become a little bit of a thing and I love the spooky and the kooky and I just I wanted it so bad Um, so that's heartbreaking well I think they're just awesome and so I took a deep dive into the history of where jack-o'-lanterns come from and then some other fun random facts about them um and so what I was kind of surprised to learn about is that they well they think they originated from um like an Irish descent and so in Ireland it was really common in the the 18 and the 19th century to carve turnips and you've probably seen those terrifying um <laughs> terrifying pictures of these carved turnips they are freaking <laughs> idiots like they are yes. not jolly at all <laughs> One of my friends keeps one of my friends keeps one as his icon on like every social media, oh. and I just have to like make eye contact with it. Oh. No, they're horrifying. They look like they possess the soul of a demon, um, which is kind of fitting because they they originate from uh, there's a Gaelic kind of history where there was the idea of. Um, this roaming character they called him stringy jack um so i'm going to give you the the backstory of who stringy jack was and how he relates to a jack-o'-lantern so there's this this kind of like legend that stringy jack was just a bit of a a cheeky bugger he you know would drink too much smoke too much (laughs) um he you know 
he was known as basically the clown, the the town clown, the the town idiot, um, because he was a bit of a drunkard. Oh, <laughs> um, poor guy. That's different. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was like, oh, the town clown, and then you're like, town idiot. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess like the town, the just the cheeky bugger around town. So he was known for having, you know, <laughs> a silver tongue, could talk his way out of anything, you know. Um, could, you know, could sell ice to to an Eskimo type of character, and oh yeah, okay, yeah. So the idea is that you know he's he's just you know living his life, walking around town, and one day he he comes across this character who's laying in the middle of the street, and so the backstory is Satan had just been chilling around the town as as he does and overheard the tale of Jack's, you know, bad deeds and misdoings and was like, okay, this this guy needs to come with me down to hell. And so Jack comes I want him at my party. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Come to my den. Um, so Jack comes across this figure laying in the middle of the street in the cobblestones and little does he know it's Satan. And so he tries to help Satan up, um, which I think is kind of nice. But Satan was like, aha, I've got you, you know, I'm going to I'm going to bring you down to to the to the underworld. You know, you've done your misdeeds, you're you're cheeky, you've got to go. And so Jack, good old Jack with his silver tongue, he's like, hey, okay, like, I guess I've got to go. But, you know, can I have one last beer? before I go down, you know, just one last beer. And so Satan's like, yeah, fair enough. That's, you know, of course, let's go to the pub. So they go to the pub, they have a beer. And when it comes time to pay, Jack bets Satan. He's like, I bet you can't turn into a silver dollar. Like when they, when they ask to pay for their beer and Satan, who was trying to prove Jack wrong. Cause he's like this, this fucker, like he's just, he's a right shithead. I can, I'm going to prove that I am the all-knowing, all-powerful Satan. So he turns himself into a silver dollar, which, you know, I think he should have seen this coming. But Jack grabs him, sticks him in his pocket and puts him right next to a crucifix and, and is like, aha, you can't get me now. So that's, that's the tale of how Jack beat Satan. However, it doesn't end there. Ten years after this whole thing happened, so I'm guessing Jack just, you know, kept the silver coins i don't know it doesn't really elaborate but he got out of going to hell by having a beer and tricking the devil basically (laughs) so (laughs) 10 years later taking notes yes (laughs) i guess how to trick the devil Um, so 10 years later, Jack is still being a cheeky bugger, uh, and he's up to no good. And again, he comes across Satan and he's like, Hmm, I guess it's my time to go to hell for good. And so Jack was like, Oh, you know, one last favor, my buddy, before you take me down one last favor. And Satan's like, what is it this time? Like, go on. And Jack goes, oh, well, I, ju- I just want an apple from that tree over there. Can you climb up and get me an apple? You know, I want to taste the sweet fruit of the earth before I go. So Satan, the dumbass, climbs up the tree. And Jack gets a heap of crucifixes, puts them around the base of the tree and, like, traps Satan. You can tell this is a stupid, super-duper religious-based story. 
<laughs> but anyway, so you trap Satan up the tree with his crucifixes and it's like, you can only come down if you promise me I'm never allowed to, you'll never take me to hell. You'll never get me there. And so Satan is like, ah, oh, you know, God damn it. I can't get past the crucifixes. I guess, you know, you'll have to make a deal with the devil. Okay, let me down. I'll never take you to hell. Don't worry about it. Have a good life. Which seems all hunky-dory until Jack eventually dies from his drinking, um, very explicitly stated in the story. I think they're trying to to make a point about the drinking here. Yes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So eventually Jack dies from his drinking and he's at the pearly gates and they're like, oof, bud, your name is not on the list. You did not quite do enough good deeds. We're going to have to send you down to the to the fiery guy. And Jack's like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I can't get into heaven. Well, I'll go to hell then. So he goes to hell. And Satan's at the hell gates and it's like, no, I, you made a deal with me. I'm never letting you in. Don't worry about it. You know, you can't get in. Go back up to the pearly gates. So this poor guy is stuck between a rock and a hard place. He can't get into heaven. He hasn't been good enough. And he tricked his way out of hell. So he's got nowhere to exist for the rest of eternity. And so this is where the that carved turnip or the carved idea of like a root fruit comes in is that the devil sends him on his way with <laughs> with basically a hollowed out um, a vegetable with like a candle in it. And it's like, there you go, that's your that's your light, lead your path, good luck. And he spends all of eternity just rummaging through the the middle between good and bad, which I guess if you're Catholic is purgatory. Um, but yes, yeah, mm-hmm. so that is the story of, of Stringy Jack and the lantern relates to this idea of like that middle ground, the, the middle between good and bad. And so some Irish or some Gaelic, um, cultures would then have these pumpkins or these turnips out, like the root fruit outside their house carved as like a symbol to wear away bad deeds to remind them that, you know, they're going to end up in the bad place or in purgatory. Um, and that, that was, oh, fascinating. yeah, so it was kind of like a warding off the evil. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to the US, it's kind of similar, the idea of warding off evil. Um, however, it's more around that idea of, of these coming around the harvest time. So around Thanksgiving and around the time where all of the, the harvest is in and they turned into more of a fun a fun little thing where you, you know, you light your path, you know, you can ward away evil, but you can have fun with it. And that's how we got the modern <laughs> pumpkin carving today. Wow. Oh, I never knew that at all. I, I, I grew up right outside of Sleepy Hollow. <gasps> that's so which I'm cool. sure you've heard of. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I've been there quite a bit and I never knew this story. Well, the idea of like Sleepy Hollow is that the, the headless horseman ends up with like a, a jack o' lantern on his head, doesn't he? Right. Yes. Yes. That was the story I thought you were going to tell. I have never heard this story before, and I love it. Oh, awesome. Yeah, you know, I think the the <laughs> idea of um, the headless horseman having the jack o' lantern on his head is kind of similar. That idea of of living in between hell and a good place. 
Um, but I thought <laughs> I would find just some fun random facts because I freaking love pumpkin carving. Um, so I wanted to know the world records of the different types of pumpkin carving <laughs> events. Um, and so I have some I have some records for you. Okay, give us some records. Okay. Drew collects records. <laughs> I do collect records. Right. <laughs> Let me put these down and I'll collect them Here too. Here are some records for you. Okay, so the largest pumpkin sculpture ever, non it should not surprise you, it comes out of the USA. Um, and it is uh, a carved scenery of a zombie apocalypse from two giant pumpkins. And the total weight was 800 kilograms. So almost a ton oh of pumpkins. Jeez, <laughs> ton of pumpkins. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Imagine being a squirrel and finding that. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could eat forever. It would be the greatest day ever. Um, and then if you're a screw, you'd probably re be really happy to find the longest line of carved pumpkins. So like a continuous line of pumpkins, which is from the UK yeah. at 4,164 pumpkins in a line, um, which is a lot of pumpkins. It's a lot Hell of pumpkins. Yeah. It is. Um, we also have a record for the most pumpkins carved in one hour, and that is 109 pumpkins from someone called Trevor Hunt from America. And then, Thank you, Trevor. this is probably my favorite one, the fastest time to carve a pumpkin. So how fast can you carve these bad boys? And this record is... <laughs> yeah, wait, 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 wait. What does carve actually mean? I'm not sure. On Guinness World Records, they don't have like. like could you? Could I just like? Could I stab a pumpkin with a pen? And it's like carved. Oh, I found <laughs> I found some requirements. So you need to. It needs to be hollowed out. Have a complete face, including eyes, nose, mouth, and ears. I can stab all of this with a pen. <laughs> well, can you do it? In 16.4 seconds. What? Yeah. That's, that's Isn't that fast. epic? Wow. This guy was not fucking around. He wanted that world record. Not messing around. So this is probably my favorite and just like the most why. Like why? Why does this exist? Um, which is the fastest time to carve one ton worth of pumpkins. Um Oh, an entire ton, ton worth of pumpkins and the record is held uh, for 3 hours and 33 minutes which is just obscene that's a lot of carving that's a lot of carving do people like have ambitions to do this or does it just happen you think Oh, I feel like you've got to have ambition to do it <laughs> it, I, it's never happened to me I've never carved a ton worth of pumpkins out of accident <laughs> I feel like it's someone just wanting a world record like what can I well, do I'm pretty good at carving pumpkins <laughs> yeah. huh I got a lot of pumpkins <laughs> huh maybe just maybe just carve them up <clears throat> Exactly. Wow. There's also, um, <laughs> this is another one. It's not related to pumpkin carving, but it is a general pumpkin record, which I could not stop giggling when I first read it. And it's <laughs> the fastest hundred meters traveled in a pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> 
and all of these are held on water because it's easier to paddle your pumpkin than it is to like roll in a pumpkin. Oh my god. Uh, but yeah, the, the, that record is 2 minutes uh, and 0.3 seconds to paddle 100 meters in a giant ass pumpkin. In a pumpkin. That's a big pumpkin again. Yeah, these are huge. Jeez. There's some great photos which we'll put on the Twitters and the, and the Instagram. <laughs> that is freaking awesome. Gram them pumpkins. Oh, so good. Gram them pumps. Anyway, so I now have new oh. ambitions to get a pumpkin carving world record one day. <laughs> get a pumpkin carving world record. <laughs> I feel like that's all of that pent up, like, missing out on Halloween is now, like, I need to, I need a <laughs> I need to have a pumpkin record. Yeah, I'm now aggressively <laughs> invested in Halloween. <laughs> Hello? Oh, oh yeah, yes. there you go. We're still Hello. here. Hello. So, shall we take... Can you hear us? I can. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, good. Um, so, shall we go from my, my ambition to dominate the pumpkin carving scene into AI dominating the world. In the world? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Lindsay is stoked for this to happen. Well, I also think that that was a brilliant transition. That's a brilliant transition. Thank, thank you. Thank you. This, um, this topic has a very, very personal, uh, personal touch to me because my grandfather was obsessed with it. He would talk about it every single time I went to see really? him. He, he was always he, always talking about how computers were going to take over the world. Oh. And so it, it was just very funny to me that I ended up on this topic it, it, with <laughs> him. He would always, always talk about this. So, was he um, scared of it yeah, or was that, he excited about it? Yes. He was terrified. Oh, he was, sweet thing. Yeah, he was very, very scared of of robots taking over, and he was he. He would sh- talk about it to. Oh, was, go on. I was going to say, was he shitting his pants for Y two K? Yeah, he absolutely. <laughs> oh, was. No, did he have like a doomsday bunker ready to go? <laughs> <laughs> his basement was kind of doomsday, but oh, he sounds um, like a legend. He uh, he definitely was. He was something. <laughs> <laughs> he was something. Um, he was something else. Definitely something else. So it was just very funny to me that um, AI takeover is what I ended up on. Um, so basically the idea of AI takeover is that at some point an artificial life form or you know, a robot will become the dominant life form on the planet either using a computer program or robots will just, you know, take control of the planet from the human species. It it sounds a little ridiculous, but, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the idea. They might do um, a better job of caring for the planet. Yeah, probably. Mm. Um, and some very important individuals have said, have talked on this. Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk have both talked on this and have said that we need to take precaution in regards to super intelligent machines so that they remain under human control. But I, for one, accept our robot overlords. <laughs> <laughs> you just want that out there so for when they overtake. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when they overtake, I, I am the first one to accept. I'll bow you down. Know, throw a robot in my brain. <laughs> yep, throw a robot in my brain, I'm happy. 
Um, so let's <laughs> dig a little further into the types of AI takeover that can happen. So yeah, one I'm of the first of ones, <laughs> <laughs> I am too, um, which is funny. This is actually pertains to this. So uh, one of the first types of, of um, takeover that can happen is basically robots dist- or robots AI destroying the economy. And basically the idea is that advances in technology will cause long-term unemployment among humans. Mm-hmm. And the traditional consensus among economists is that advances in technology will not cause such problems. But, you know, with greater advances in robotics and artificial intelligence, who knows, human labor may become very obsolete. Well, I mean... And, you know, with the obsolete... What is economy anyway? Like, it is kind of all this, like, construction of our own doing, the idea that, like, the dollar has a value. It really is. And I think that's kind of having human labor at the center of that. You know, once we have, you know, once the the human labor becomes obsolete, you know, what what are we going to do? There's so many people who are going to be out of jobs Mm. and and what are we going to do from there? So it's, it's a kind of takeover in that, you know, it destroys human society as we know it because, you know, we're, we're, we'd have to adapt completely to a new type of society where robots are the center of, 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 of work. And, um, this of course includes, you know, AI driving and, 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 um, AI production because, um, you know, with driving, there's tons of dangers of, of humans becoming jobless, even now where um, you have all these autonomous cars driving. And so all the driving related jobs are going to be lost due to, you know, the autonomous vehicles replacing them. Mm. So there's a, a, a very real chance that humans become obsolete when it comes to uh, to working, that we may have to completely change our society to you know adapt to this and you know even jobs that are skilled labor um such as like legal research and journalism care work and entertainment which were assumed to require empathy which i i love that line i love that <laughs> assumed to require empathy, <laughs> um have begun to be performed by robots and <clears throat> excuse me and so it's just like uh, it, we're kind of teetering on a little bit of an edge where as soon as robots start really taking over everything, we're going to have to drastically change how we work. And that's kind of a, a little bit of a scary robot takeover that, that could very well be on the uh, like pretty near future. Um, so now on to the more interesting one, which is the eradication of the human race. <laughs> <laughs> Just casually. So uh, scientists are confident that humans can produce artificial intelligence that is superhuman. And uh, some scholars, such as Nick Bostom, who is a philosopher at Oxford, think that superintelligent machines would not be motivated by the same emotional desires that to collect power that drives humans into acting like assholes. But <laughs> collecting power may be a means to an end when taking over the world would greatly increase the superintelligent machine's access to resources. So basically, he does. He said this in an example of um, a paperclip maximizing machine is designed solely to create as many paperclips as possible, 
could end up taking over the world as a way to prevent humans from turning it off and as a means of preventing humans from using resources for other things aside from paper clips. So even the simplest machines with the simplest instructions could take it to an extreme that could lead to the end of mankind for more paper clips. So that was just kind of a, a, a small example of how even just like the simplest machine could really, really destroy human race. So it's, it's just very interesting how easy it is to create something that could do that you know imagine yeah, that's kind of amazing imagine if that's the way we go out paper clips that's the way we paper deserve clips, to go yeah. out it really is <laughs> for more paper yeah. clips <laughs> uh, so now let's move on to fiction because you know ai takeover has a huge presence in fiction and fiction of course makes the human ai battle so much more glamorous than you know just paper clips but you know the conflict um you know, conflicts would have a lot more action, such as, you know, when Terminator or iRobot or 20, 2001 Space Odyssey, where the act of taking over is based on the desire to depose humans. And so that kind of whole idea is found throughout fiction of, you know, this, this much more violent uprising. Um, and researchers believe that true AI takeover will be a byproduct of an arbitrary goal, as I mentioned before, and not really this whole big uprising. But, um, you know, fiction uses a much more anthropomorphic motive for robots and AI to take over humans because it's a little bit more interesting than paperclips. Mm. So um, this theme, which is interesting to me, is, um, is as old as Carl Kepnick's R-U-R, which, is, which introduced the word robot into the general lexicon in 1921. Really? And I thought it was like so much older. Nope. I thought it was younger. It's 1921. Yeah, it, well, the, so the word robot comes from the Czech word robata, meaning laborer or serf. Oh. And the play, the play wow. itself was, was um, a protest against the rapid growth of technology, which featured manufactured robots which, with increasing capabilities who eventually revolt against humans who created them. Mm. So it's, you know, this play kind of had an idea of robots kind of going against humans because they're, you know, being serfs or laborers and didn't want to fill that role anymore. And that was kind of the whole idea of it. It was like a rebellion against, you know, the ruling class kind of a thing. And so that was, um, that was rather interesting. Yeah. And um, He'd probably freak sorry, out I'm just a call. if he was alive today. <laughs> the amount of robots. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, poor guy. Yeah, poor guy. That would be seeing the amount of robots and how advanced they are. He'd probably be like, "Oh my god, what's going it's happening? on?" I was right. So let's get on to the uh, contributing factors that could create a takeover. So basically, um, a super intelligent robot or AI that is able to modify its own source code and thereby be- increase its own intelligence could lead to what's called recursive intelligent explosion, which basically means that as the robot gets better at, at you know, upgrading its own technology, it's able to become smarter and faster and faster. And so you end up with this huge explosion of intelligence where the robot is able to basically out-advance anything that humans could do. And so that kind of robot could, in theory, 
research nanotechnology or advanced biotechnology and create like these nanobots that end up poisoning humanity because it just is able to out manipulate humans or out maneuver humans in um in such an easy way because it's so intelligent um and uh the other possibility or uh, the other the other reason why AI could take over is that it's far easier to create an unfriendly AI than it is to create a friendly AI because yes. basically <laughs> <laughs> because basically you you have to for to create a friendly AI what you have to do is you have to make the AI not be able to change its goal structure so basically that means that you couldn't have it uh how did I explain this you couldn't have it um like during the self-improvement, it couldn't change its goals at all. It has to have the same goal and the goal could not vary at all because if you let it vary its goals, then it can start building and building and building until its goals don't align with human values anymore. And so you end up with the, the paperclip robot that's able to take over humanity because it's able to vary its goals and you, you don't want that. And of course you want the goals to align with human values. And, um, the AI must not undergo what's called instrumental convergence, which is a theory that intelligent agents will pursue potentially unbounded instrumental goals, provided that their ultimate goal themselves are unlimited. So basically, as we said with the paperclip robot, if you had um, an unending goal, it can basically build up these these um, smaller goals that end up t going towards the bigger goal. That's not well explained. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Can you use an example? Um, the the paperclip robot is a great example because what it does is it, it its simple goal is to say create as many paperclips as possible in a in a given time. And so what it does is it says, all right, well you know, I see these humans that are using resources that could be used towards paperclips. Why don't I stop them from using them? And so it's able to create these smaller goals that end up like building towards its ultimate goal. And so, yeah, it's able to um, have these goals that vary. And because it's able to vary these goals, it's able to, you know, start on a bad path and continue on that bad path because that bad path is more productive. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's kind of the unfriendly AI is easier to create because it doesn't have these limitations where it can, you know, vary its goals. It can do basically whatever it wants because the unfriendly AI is able to, um, like just completely, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to deal with human values anymore. It just, you know, does what it does what it does and, um, ends up creating, Oh God, this is fucking awful. <laughs> sorry. No, it's not. Um, sorry. Okay. So the unfriendly AI does not have these limitations and therefore it's far easier to create and um, it's able to have all these unlimited goals that are able to, um, you know, end up destroying humanity versus a friendly AI, which would have to be reined in by human um, human values, but you know the the unfriendly AI doesn't have any of those limitations. So what all this boils down to, and I quote Stephen Hawking on this, is that AI offer entropy. <laughs> AI could offer incalculable benefits and risks, 
where technology outsmarting financial markets, out inventing humans, or out manipulating human leaders and developing weapons we cannot understand basically could lead to the end of the world or the end of human mm-hmm. race, not the end of the world, because the world's fine. The human race is going to be the problem. Um, and so it's just a... Uh, Drew. The way forward Drew. when it comes to AI is just what? I what? have an example I want you to talk about when you're done. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, just go. F- I'm almost done right now, so go for it. Soma. Who? What? Soma. The AI in Soma. Oh, in Soma. Yeah, that actually makes sense. That the, the Well, the AI's main goal was to keep humans alive. And so it didn't really... In, in Soma, it's a video game for Sarah. Who uh, yeah, know. I haven't played it. Um, and, but it sounds really cool. And probably... Probably everybody else hasn't heard it because every time I bring it up, everyone's like, what the fuck? Are you <laughs> what the fuck is like, Soma? No, it's there. <laughs> so the, the point of the AI in Soma was to keep humans alive. Mm-hmm. And if that incorporated, you know, uh, machines, like giving them new lungs that are, that are made out of machine, that was fine. It just said, I want to keep humans alive. And that's its sole goal. And by doing so, it was able to, well, it basically killed a lot of humans because it, well, it, it's a whole question of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, but it basically killed the human form to, uh, to support human life because it kind of saw that if the person was still breathing, if the person was still thinking that that was a human. And so it also put humans into a bunch of different robots. <laughs> and it was, uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting, introspective way of looking at what is humanity but right. um yeah, like, the, like the robot would be like a building yes and, like humans would just be like melded into the walls as these oh, still sentient, just like breathing lungs that cannot move that sounds like a horror show it was a very scary game i did not like watching you play <laughs> <laughs> It Lindsay was, still has it, nightmares. I did not like it. <laughs> yeah, it also brought up this whole idea of like what it means to be human because you kept on you kept on copying yourself and uh, this is a tangent but you kept on copying yourself and the question was if you copy yourself do you like which one's the real one which one like the the one that's stuck in the chair that you just copied from or the one that's moving around now like which one is the real one and it was a very interesting um like very introspective way of looking at what it is to be human and so it, I, I don't know. I really liked that game, and it was it, fun. That's even, and like, super meta, because you could even ask, like, in a more, res- like, removed way, like, which is the real you? The you that's playing the game? Like, your consciousness that's carrying out actions in the game? Or the you that is physically, like, in the physical world playing the game? Oh, <laughs> like, that's where, so where meta. Is you as a person right now? <laughs> Shit. Yeah, where... Yeah. That's, uh, I didn't even think about that, but it's, um, that's actually one of my favorite games and I've, I've freaking love that game. Um, I gotta play it now. You make me want to play it again. Uh, <laughs> Send us a screenshot of you playing. I will. Uh, <laughs> Be like, that's but my lungs. That's my lungs. I'll, I'll take a picture of all the humans. Um, 
Yes, please. I want to see the building human lung the wall. Building, yeah, I lo- I'll, I'll show you them. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so the whole... I mean, th- that AI is a great example of, of AI takeover in that, you know, the it has a simple goal in mind and that simple goal, it sort of extrapolates from there. And because you didn't, you know, limit how it ends up, it, you, you didn't limit its goals, it's able to completely change how its goal structure goes and it's able to, you know, really build from there until it creates these horror shows of humans because it's just following its main goal of to keep humans alive. And so even, even the paperclip robot's a great example but um, yeah, it just it follows its own goal until it ends up, you know, destroying humanity. But that's besides the point. So um, I, have, as I said before, accept our o- robot overlords. But uh, <laughs> others may be a little less keen to that idea. So yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the long and short of AI takeover. It's what's so cool to me is that like. I think equal to the AI takeover is we have to first answer the question, what does it mean to be human? So like if AI are going to dominate us or change humanity or overcome humanity, I think we first have to decide what humanity is that could be lost. Mm. Yes. What is fundamental to the human experience that could be dominated? And like you kind of touched on that, like, um, like the economy was like part of that example but it's so weird because i would never say like the you know humanity or society to me is not the economy so you know some other people especially if you go to a liberal arts school might be like oh it's art you know the creation of art but we have ai generated art already yeah so, so it, you know is that <laughs> is that is that human <laughs> is the ai that creates art human yeah that's so interesting well i was thinking when you were when you're chatting about like the taking away like the humanity i was thinking about you know wally the disney movie where all the yeah. humans are on that I spaceship and like <laughs> all the, the spaceships are automated so the humans just like float around in their beds watching tv all day because they get fed like there's no work to do there's nothing to do they just exist which i think Zoom. sounds horrendous like not having (laughs) that's an ai takeover yeah well i think you know a couple weeks of not doing anything feels really nice i imagine like years of just like existing nothing yeah i don't know it doesn't sit well with me i don't like it I share that. Yeah, I also don't like that. Yeah. So as long as, like, the yeah. robots give I, me and Lindsay a job, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even realized, yeah, Wally is a great example of AI takeover where it's, you know, humans don't have any other, I mean, they don't have a place anymore. It's just kind of they're there and, the, I mean, the AI supports them, but it's still, you know, they're not in control. It's the AI that's yeah. in control. That's, I didn't even think about that. You know what this makes me think of? I don't remember if this was a shit post or honest truth, but I saw this post somewhere that was like, trees have domesticated humans. Oh, um, there's actually a whole philosophical thing about that. It's really well explained in the book Sapiens. Um, and it's the idea that wheat 
wheat specifically or growing those type of, you know, starches and mazes. Like we didn't domesticate them. They domesticated us. That idea of having to live somewhere for a long period of time to look after your crops was not really conducive to the normal nomadic lifestyle of, of Homo sapiens and other um, like homogeneous species that that idea of like we would move around based on what the weather was doing and based on like what was edible at the time and then the idea of actually having this like agricultural revolution is not like theoretically was not as good for us because yes we could feed more people but the nutritional value of this stuff was not as good as the the wild hunting and the gathering that would have been done seasonally and so it's like well you're keeping more humans alive so that's good but are you doing it at a better cost and that idea of you are now beholden to your land or your your place that you can't move from hmm so basically so this is my optimistic take is like if you are okay with the agricultural revolution then you are also fine with ai takeover because you've already been taken over hmm. our hmm. our independence was already an illusion because we are already owned by plants we're beholden to plants mm-hmm. hmm. i like that put it on t-shirt I like that. For the <laughs> beholden well, so, like, to plants. A further, a further piece that I had seen in support of this was that, like, we depend on trees to breathe, but trees keep us around so that we can be their fertilizer when we die. Like, trees eat us. Yeah, theoretically. Hmm. Like, back before we had cemeteries and cremation, and they would also rely on us to help spread... Um, seeds and things like that from eating their fruits. Hmm. Yep. I can see that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want a tree to eat my body. I think that's nice. Thanks for hanging out with us, you guys. Uh, as always, we would like to know why. Uh, but we had a lot of fun today and we always want to hear where you've ended up on the internet, especially if it's anything like toast sandwiches or even the uh, knowledge of Knuckles the Ichidna. Kidna. Ichidna. <laughs> <laughs> or how you pronounce other words like archipelago. Archipelago. <laughs> <laughs> Add us on Twitter at GoAskAlicePod. We love spending time with you, and we can't wait to hear from you again. And if you have suggestions about what questions of the week you'd like us to answer or where you think that we should begin our Wikipedia journey, please feel free to comment and let us know. And Sarah, what is the name of our new uh, Instagram? You can follow us at GoAskAlicePodcast on Instagram for all of the fun pictures of the random bits and bobs that we talk about and i promise you you will not be bored by the pictures or the captions thank you sarah and thanks you guys for listening and we'll see you next week and i was and i was there too and i was like i'm a big boy too i'm gonna go shop in this section i'm big enough for these britches